Hey guys, welcome to the Tech People Podcast. My name is Ken Coyne. I'm your host and founder, as well as head of technology at Ops Talent. I believe at the heart of any success story are the people who made it happen. Diversity, creativity, and innovation, when nurtured in people, can lead to an unbeatable formula. I created this podcast to share the experiences of some truly inspirational leaders on their journey to success. Enjoy the show. Hey guys, and welcome back. It's your host, Ken, speaking here. Today, we're going stateside to Las Vegas to speak to Gavin Isaacs. Um, I must say, I do enjoy Las Vegas. Many good times spent there. Gavin is a highly experienced gaming executive, working for a number of different gaming companies over the years, including being CEO and president of Scientific Games. He's been chairman of SP Tech, and now he's starting to enjoy a bit of good life, doing a bit of consulting. And we're going to, I'm going to enjoy talking to Gavin about his experience, maybe learn from some, some of his successes. We want to see how he got into gaming, how has technology involved the industry, how the current epidemic environment is impacting it, and what the future holds. So welcome to the show, Gavin. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Great. Thank you. Listen, let's, let's start, please, by, if you could tell us a bit about yourself. I know you started in law, but I'm very interested to hear how you got into gaming and ended up yeah. in Vegas. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, especially, so firstly, people realize that my accent's not American. I was born and raised in Australia in Sydney and to graduate, I went to college there, I went to university there and then practiced solicitor, for those who know what that means, or a yes, lawyer. Right, yeah. Didn't go to court, did a lot of corporate and transactional work in large sole firms and became a partner. And then after 12 years of doing that, one day went to a partner's meeting and made a suggestion and I was told to shut up and sit down because I was too young. And the next morning, a headhunter rang and said, do you want to get out of law? you want to get into business? And I said, if you would have rung me yesterday, the answer is no, but today I'll talk to you. And uh, six (laughs) weeks later, I started at Aristocrat. Uh, Time Aristocrat was being uh, rebuilt. Okay, It was a great company started by Len Ainsworth and he took it semi-public, giving 50% of the stock to the public and keeping 50% to his family. And uh, it had had a downturn and it was part of the rebuild. And I joined at that stage and the, we had to do lots of little things to get the company sorted out, but it did have great content and we did that. In 2000, we got a Nevada license and then um, we bought a company called CDS in 2001. And in 2002, I went from being in the head office in Sydney. I took my wife, a five-year-old and a two-year-old. We went to live in London for three to six years to run the European operations. Love that setting, yeah, great. Then the American business took a very big downturn after one year into that. And on two days notice, I got moved to America and became the president of the Americas and the aristocrat dropped dramatically, huge issues. I had to get rid of 20% of the staff at the time. We had to complete the integration that was not completed and we had to get the company back on track, which we did. So for three years, I was the president of the Americas and then uh, when Aristocrat decided that they wanted me to go back to Australia, we decided we wanted to stay here and uh, educate the kids here. And we, I left Aristocrat and joined Bally as the COO. Okay. And again, we had a pretty good run fixing up that business and hit the recession. And after four and a half years there, there was an opportunity to become the CEO of a company called Shufflemaster. And I did okay. that. 
And then after two and a half years, Bally bought Shuffle Master. And um, it was a very high multiple at the time. We couldn't say no. And then from that moment on, after we closed that deal, I wasn't required to be part of that merger. So um, started working with a company out of New York, Private Equity, who owned a 40% stake in scientific games at the time and scientific games that had acquired WMS and needed to integrate and do some stuff. So I worked out my non-compete and then when that was finished, I started as the CEO of SciGames and I realized that we had some issues with the acquisition of WMS not being quite as strong a company as we thought. And so we decided to make another acquisition and we then went off and bought Bally and, and Shufflemaster. And so I then had the job of integrating those four companies, which I did for the next almost three years. And at the end of that, when they were all in and up and running, I uh, sort of semi-retired and went on the board, vice chairman of SciGames for two years. And then beginning of 2019, or the end of 2018, I, I left the board. And beginning of 2019, I became the chairman of Espitech. And uh, we spent 2019 negotiating and arranging a sale of that business merger with that three-way merger with Double Eagle Acquisition Corp and DraftKings. And as of last April, we are now part of DraftKings. I'm on the board of non-executive director of DraftKings. I'm a non-executive director of a company called Galaxy Gaming, which does tables. I'm an advisor to a few other companies, Jack Pocket, that does online. It's an app for buying lottery tickets. Okay. And some bits and pieces and um, working on my golf game. <laughs> that sounds like fun. That's how I got here. Uh, yeah, and that's the sunshine, of course. That's the benefit of living in a sunshine state. Well, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, I mean, you must have seen massive transition in the gaming industry from mm. when you started to where it is now. I mean, when you started, could you describe it a bit for what kind of gaming it is? Sure. Well, uh, it was very much in America. It was very stepper orientated you know mechanical reel and it was very denomination orientated so people played penny uh, they didn't play pennies they played quarters they played dollars sometimes they played smallest denomination was nickels and so the, the american psyche was well i'm playing a dollar game and i can max bet for three dollars or i'm playing a quarter game so i can match bet for 75 cents in australia because of prior arrangements between major players australia was all video and so Australia was already getting into penny slots and things like that. So when I came to the company, Aristocrats Games in Australia were beginning to do really, really well. There was a game called Queen of the Nile and Dolphin Measure and all of those games that were dominating the market down there. You know, really the precursors to all the games that are out there today in video, both online and land-based. And so then uh, we, I came over to America and basically was part of the invasion of the video penny slots to America. And so we saw a huge change initially in play when people realized in America, some still don't, that uh, you know you can play a dollar game for a max bet of $3, but you can actually, on a lot of penny slots, you can play a max bet of... So it's actually the denomination and the average bet that should be looked at, not the denomination. So that's been a massive change, obviously, the transition to video. I also saw the transition from... I was not around when they were bill validators, but I was around with hoppers, which are coin devices inside machines. Okay. But the big technology change in slot machines came when all of a sudden you could put a bill validator in, which mm. JCM innovated that, where you could actually drop a $20 note into the machine and you'd get credits on the meter. And then um, I think about 2000, 
ticket in, ticket out became the big phase where cash was removed and tickets became thing, and that was a huge change. And, and I guess we were getting towards a stage, in my opinion, where we were going to get a little bit more digital orientated with our payment mechanisms before the last recession are back on hold because as much as innovation goes along, someone has to pay for it and customers aren't prepared to pay for that, it doesn't happen. Okay. So, you know, you've seen all those changes. Now you see then then in about oh, maybe 15 years ago, you saw the advent of cabinet styles coming in. You know, it used to be almost every cabinet was the same. Every cabinet looked the same, was the same size, etc. A couple of big novelty cabinets. Then all of a sudden you had the license themes and you were trying to differentiate them so they became bigger and then you had curved LEDs, LCDs, you had all these great new products and now you've got these machines and you walk on a floor and you have innovation both in the software, you have innovation in the hardware. But fundamentally, apart from quicker processes, they're, they're still the same. Okay. You know, at the same time, I think about 20 years ago, we saw our first online casinos, online gaming and coming out of Europe primarily. 2006, it was completely shut down in America. Um, oh, illegal, yeah. Europe, you know, went from being the complete unregulated world. America was the complete regulated world. Well, land base was the complete regulated world. And then um, bit by bit, the two markets have come together and now it's becoming more and more legitimate to be online and land-based because they're both regulated. But early days in online, it was not regulated and the games were basically copies of the land-based slots, they've evolved a long way, obviously, with um, episodal games and different kinds of concepts where the game's only part of the experience. And online's become very large. And in America still, you know, now we've got the sports betting wave coming in. Yeah. But we still don't have online gaming only in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, so that's still to come. And there are lots of other innovations, social gaming, you know, mobile app, applications and we've seen some great changes and we're unfortunately in a situation where in many regulated markets you cannot openly innovate. You have to meet within the requirements and part of that's player protection, part of that's regulatory concerns. Okay. Part of that's and a big part of that is that, you know, to replace all your technology, to replace systems, to replace infrastructure is very expensive. And the casinos have to be prepared to do that. Yeah. So I've been rambling on a lot. Yeah, yeah no, that's very interesting. It's good to see how it's all about. Very fascinating. I grew up in sports in Australia. You know, we had um, bookmakers, like in Ireland, we had bookmakers on track and we had yeah. uh, the tote and we had uh, people who professionally gambled on that. And then we had the TAB, it was called, in New South Wales. So everyone could have a bet at the uh, pub or whatever. And yeah. Then, of course, they became online, etc. That was when I was back down there. And... Fast forward today, you know, we're two years into online gaming in America. So, you know, it's a very incredible, and America isn't one market, it's multiple markets. So there's maybe 15 or so states that operate now with maybe another 20, you know, lined up. But you've got to look at every market separately. I mean, Asia's been a huge, saw Asia develop, you know, Macau, Kotai, all that didn't yeah. exist. So it's, it's been interesting and, you know, it's, we're about to have another very interesting stage, I think. But is it taking the fun? I mean, has a, is it the same fun as it used to be before? I mean, with all this online stuff, you know, versus like you've mentioned there, being at the track and, you know. I think, yeah, I think everything's different. I think people have different ways of having fun. I mean, you know, I, keep, I was reading this morning's paper here about a, another skill-based gaming operator who got licensed. I mean, people say, what about skill-based? And I go, 
Most slot players don't want any skill in their game. It's like buying a lottery ticket. They just hit the button. They hope they win. But a market out there for people who want skills. So God bless. It's something different. Some people like to sit on their computers and play games. Other people like to go to bars and, and chat. I like the social experience of a casino. Um, the data aspect of it, I mean, is there much being done now in terms of, you know, data being the new oil in terms of, you know... Well, yeah, I've, I've heard that for all my career, data, data, data. Mm. It's all data, it's all about data. It's actually not. It's all about how you use the data and how you can make it useful because you can do analysis just about anything and you can get a lot of data and you can collect a lot of data and you can get reams and reams of it, I mean, every transaction. But it's how you use it and people say they use it in different ways and if they did, they'd be killing it and they're not. So I still think that's embryonic and I think people still have to work it out and I think there's some great tools out there to help you better analytics and you can get better feedback and you can do certain things that I think part of in some areas we're doing it very, very well and in other areas... Again, it comes back to you're prepared to spend money to get that kind of information. But at the moment, data, to me, it's, it's still one of those red herrings. Yeah, I mean, how did you go about, you know, you know, like setting up new games and new technology? What was, I mean, was there kind of a Yeah, well, that's a great example of where we take data. Yeah. We know analytics from certain other games, and we know that this one works that way, that one does, and you can follow it. But... I try and tell people that if it was that easy, then everyone would be able to do it and every game that you made would be a great success. But I think roughly 15% of games that are made are great successes. And, you know, I go back to the early days where we had games, multiple skins, if you will, with the same math model. And some of those games were great successes and some of them were flops. And some of them were market-orientated. Some of them weren't. You know, I remember it basically in Australia Similar math models, if not identical, Queen of the Nile and Dolphin Treasure. One, a dolphin theme, obviously, with treasure chests. The other one, an Egyptian theme. The Egyptian theme in New South Wales dominated. And the dolphin theme, treasure theme in Victoria dominated at the same time. So, you know, how do you work that out? And and I've seen it happen millions and millions of times over the if you actually knew exactly how to make a great game and what players really want, you would do it every time and yet your hit rate's one in 10. So it's a number you know, game. Really. I mean about the data, you know, it's one thing to have the information. It's one thing to know what people like, but it's, it's like baking a cake on a different, you know, sometimes and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. And I mean, actually I was, I was uh, moderating a panel discussion today about products and, you know, how do you make a product attractive to your customer, which was, it's interesting when you, you know, talk about this and, you know, launching new products in the market. And, you know, in your experience, would you reinvent the wheel in terms of the gaming or would you look to, you know, take an idea that might have worked well and you try and improve it or enhance it? I think it's always evolution rather than revolution. Yeah. And I think that there are some great opportunities, but you're going to have to make some big changes also. But it's still an evolution. You know, I, the games out there entertain people at great games and there's more of that to happen. But I'm a firm believer in the mobile experience. Yeah. Everyone uses a phone, a, a mobile phone of some sort. And I think that whilst you don't have to necessarily be 100% online, there has to be some kind of hybrid bridge between the land and the online and the mobile experience, which will make, I think, everything a lot more fun and more convenient from humans, from tracking, from everything like that. So I'm excited to see what people do in that field, which I think is going to be a huge opportunity. 
Now I can see it myself in terms of definitely mobile applications, online yeah. shopping is much more mobile. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Even no, I think you have to enrich the experience inside a, a venue. And if you go to some of the casinos, you know, they're fun places to be and some of them are beautiful. And yet you've got to be able to take that experience away with you and somehow have a similar, if not the same experience when you're at home. But again, link it into the experience of the casino, which makes you want to go to the casino. You know, so I think that phone is a very important bridge for that, yeah, personally. And I, yeah, and I, I mean, in terms of competition, I mean, I, I guess it's a very competitive market. Would that be a correct assumption to make? Or is there some big key players that are kind of running? No, I think it's a competitive market. I think it's going to be interesting going forward. I mean, a lot of there's been, there's been a lot of consolidation. I mean, I put, I put four companies together or three. And I think that that's always a great way to grow if you can get synergies out of putting companies together and you can expand your market. Then ideally, and this, the rationale behind that should be that you can spend more money developing new products and investing in the future. Mm. You know, part of what's happened is, of course, debt and public markets have caused some of these companies to be constrained and they can't innovate as, as the way they should be. But yeah, I think there's going to be a few major players that stand out after the uh, COVID experience is over. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see if that plays out. Yeah, just speaking of COVID, I mean, how is that impact, impacting the current well, gaming market? Well, I mean, I live in Las Vegas and we have the highest unemployment now in the, in the country. The papers today say we hit 33%. Most of the yeah. casinos are going to not take back all the people they laid off. You know, in the recession, we had up to 20%. We're already at 33 now. How's it affected? It's killing people. It's, it's sending people broke, sending people mad. The good news is people don't seem to be dying anymore or getting yeah. sick, which is good. But, uh, you know, shut down and now it's time to open up and see what happens. But until people come back here, until conventions come back here, Vegas is going to be very tough. You know, we've seen some of the regional markets open up and crowds are there. Yeah. You know, there's still a demand for people who want to play. And then, I mean, the casino was open today. I'd be happy to go there. Yeah. But uh, we're opening on June the 4th. So you have to patient you know, you know, with these new rules, no one quite knows and suck it up and see, and we'll see what happens. Yeah. Do you think it will go much more online now as a result? Do you see that happening or not? I don't think so in America. I don't think okay. in the short term. I mean, obviously sports, yes, but you need something to bet on. So it's good news. Some of the sports coming back. I don't think the regulators are going to open up online casinos anytime soon. You know, New Jersey's done it and Pennsylvania have done it. And that's it at the moment, really. Maybe Delaware as well. But, you know, I think there's a lot of lobbying being done by the big land-based companies that don't want that to occur. So we'll see what happens. But ultimately, over time, it has to happen. Yeah, more and more. Uh, but I don't think it's going to be as a result of COVID. Interesting. How about this whole area of esports? I mean, have you done much work in that space? Not really. I've looked at it. Again, I think... From my perspective, esports is, is another great opportunity for, for a different group of people who want to get involved in that kind of stuff. From a mainstream casino gambling perspective, it's just another sport to bet on. You know, I don't see the connection between someone who spends $40 on a video game or goes and spends $60 to watch one of these tournaments or follows these tournaments online and they personally bets on tables or casino slots or anything like that, I don't see a huge connection there. 
I've always taken the theory when people tell me about skill and esports and all this kind of stuff that people who turn you know, mid forties all of a sudden have more time and a little bit more money on their hands, and that's the target audience. Younger people generally don't have the disposable income to go and spend it on entertainment like casino and gambling. So you know, you when I started in America twenty years ago, nineteen years ago, the studies showed the average age of a slot player was forty six. I keep reading how the, the players are dying off, et cetera, but a study three years ago showed the average age is 47. So it seems that that sweet spot's the same. So, you know, esports, it's just it's another good thing coming through and there's a group of people, younger people, who love watching it and following it, and that's great. Yeah. But do I think that casinos are going to become big esports palaces? I don't think initially. Not in the short term. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. And, you know, draw my views. <laughs> a lot of people don't agree with me. <laughs> but you, you've spoken about you know, you, how you've, you've been involved in some companies and you had to turn them around. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us a bit more, talk about maybe one of the examples, one of the cases? There must have been obviously a difficult time, but I'd love to hear how you actually did that turnaround. No, I don't want to spin a scenario in almost every company we've been at. We've had some issues that you have to deal with. I mean, no one's blessed enough to into a company. There's a few people who are, but that everything's all sorted and they don't have anything to do. You know, when we got to Aristocrat, we were being sued by our founder. We were being, we didn't have a license in Nevada, which at the time was very important for American growth, things like that. But we did have good content, you know, so we sorted out things with our founder who we love and respect and got rid of that big overhang. And then we got the Nevada license, which got rid of that overhang. And that, that was a, an opportunity to grow the business exponentially. When, um, the integration of two companies didn't work well in those days. And we had a company, I think the American division missed its numbers dramatically. And the share price went from like $1.70 or something down to about 70 cents. Ouch. That was a major concern. And they fired every VP and they fired all the people, build the culture. And the way I was very, very blessed that when I flew from London to New York, I sat next to a uh, guy on an airplane who actually just reached out to me on LinkedIn. The other and at the time, he was an associate professor on dysfunctional companies. And I told him my story. And he gave me a lot of great advice. And we did a presentation. I got to America and I said to the, one of the lessons, one of the great lessons I learned, I said to the teams there, I said, you know, I see a lot of you wearing aristocrat shirts. I see a lot of you wearing CDS shirts. I think you guys got it wrong. This isn't a merger. This is an acquisition. You call it what you want. But uh, you either want to be part of a risk credit or you don't. If you don't want to be on board, then go. But if you want to be part of one company, you've got to, you know, it's up to you. And uh, that's the only kind of, you, you've got to set very clear directions. And from that moment on, the company went from like 26 cents when I left. And again, a lot of it was driven by America, utilizing the great games coming out of Australia, but the cultures and everything were very strong and it was around $12, $13, you know, Bally was the same. Bally had a great systems business, but not a great gaming business. And we managed to take about 70% of the inefficiencies out of the line and the timing wise and produced some great games. And, and all of a sudden, Bally became a hot air too. That was a lot of fun. At Shuffle Master, there was a you know, changing of the guard. They had an, an acting CEO for a while. And, and before that, some CEOs didn't last long. So we came in and, again, changed the culture around completely. And really, that was the, the best example of 
closest thing I've ever seen to textbook teamwork that I can imagine where people didn't necessarily love each other, but they respected each other and worked with each other. And, you know, we, we had an incredible experience there and hence grew that business dramatically. So in every situation, there's been um, opportunity. There's always been uh, some issues to fix and there always will be. And uh, you get lots of out of, you get lots of learnings out of each one. It's been fascinating. Would you say luck has played a part also in your career? I think it has, has to. It has to, yeah. And turning things yeah. around. There's a lot of incredibly smart, talented people who haven't had the breaks I've got. So, yes, 100%. Timing. Just the right time, right place. A bit of that. Sometimes you've got to make your own luck as well. Yeah. You know, sometimes you, you've got to backwards to go forwards, if you will. You know, when I left the partner of a large law firm to go become the general manager of legal and compliance and aristocrat, people thought I was crazy. You know, I took a massive cut in pay, but it was something that I, you know, I, people would talk me out of it. And it was something I wanted to do. And, you know, when I decided to stay in America, that turned out well. When I decided to change companies, that, that turned out well. You've got to be a bit lucky as well. Yeah. But part of that is, is knowing when the time is right. So you've got to make your own luck. You've got to go with your gut instinct. Sometimes. The gut in works very well when it's in sync with your head. <laughs> yeah. In terms of the competition, I mean, how, in your experience, how, how would you stay ahead of the competition? I think um, in our small sector, and I think the most successful companies really do focus on development of their technologies, their R&D. And I think a lot of companies is critical, has always been critical. But coming out of this is going to be even more critical. And so strong leadership, strong corporate cultures, they're going to sustain competitive advantage, I believe, to those companies that adopt them. And those companies that are just uh, trying to draw blood out of stones and people aren't happy going to work will suffer accordingly. That's right. It's all people and culture. I mean, passion myself. About all, what is a company? It's a group of people. Yeah. You know, products are made by people. They're not made by corporate entities. Yeah. You know, you've got to really read that. And, you know, we've gone through a period, I think, particularly since the last recession of fine-tuned the extent that the private equity model of coming in company, buying it, adding a lot of debt, cutting costs and selling it at a profit, I think that's going to work as well. And it hasn't been working as well as, as it did initially because a lot of companies I saw initially. So now you've got to look, how do you actually invest in these culture and, and competitive and ways up just financial inefficiencies? Yeah. So tell us, I mean, what's the future hold? I mean, where, where do you see us going from here? Listen, from, well, I think everyone, the other thing about making your own luck is it's a lot easier to make progress when it's in choppy waters, I think. I think that there's going to be some great opportunities for innovation. People are going to be more open to try things coming out of it. I think we've got a new aspect that no one ever experienced before. You know, any, previously, if people sat at home watching TV all day, playing with their computer all day, doing that. Everyone thought there was a problem with them. Now it's almost semi-normal. So, you know, I think it's now a question of how you adapt experiences towards catering for that and for people who want to go out. And I think that's an opportunity. And I think, you know, some of these, if I was a um, young game developer, for example, would be looking at the ways in which I can use my phone and adjunct to my land-based equipment. 
If I was a, an operator, I'd be looking at my experience for my players. You know, I'm gonna, if I'm only allowed people six feet apart, that's not experience. But that'll change over time as well. But what can I do to make the casino a more relevant experience? So I think there's lots of experiences and, you know, I think things are just plodding along and everything's going well. It's very hard to differentiate. But now I think it's a great opportunity for companies that want to differentiate. Fantastic, Evan. Listen, thank you for your time today and your insights. Oh, my really, really interesting. And congratulations on your success and your career. It sounds amazing. It really does. It's been fun. It's How, not over yet. It's not over yet, exactly, because I know you're yeah. consulting now and you're on many boards, so mm. it's something you obviously are passionate about. What's the best place if people want to get in touch with you or reach out? I mean, what's the best place to get in touch with you or follow you? Um, well, I'm on LinkedIn. I guess that's the best way to, to contact me for people who, who don't have my email. But yeah, I mean, I keep up to speed with all, you know, one of the lessons I was taught junior lawyer was return every call, return, we didn't have emails so much, but return every of, of those electronic messages that you get every day. You should, no one should ever wait more than 24 hours to respond. And so, I mean, my LinkedIn messages, I'm pretty good at, it's probably the worst, but before I go to bed, I never have any open emails. So, you know, I, I, I believe in communication and feedback and I, nothing upsets me more than I dump a, an email on someone, don't hear back, dump another one back, send them a text, don't hear back. And then when you meet them, it's like, oh, nothing else happened. I mean, I think that's just yeah. bad business practice and ultimately rude. Yeah, I agree. If people want to contact me, LinkedIn's a great place. Fantastic, and I appreciate it. I reached out to LinkedIn as well. So thank you so that's much for accepting my message and taking the time. My pleasure. My pleasure.